Hello, friends. Before we get started with the show today, I wanted to let you know that I've got a CME event currently running. It'll probably run through the end of the year 2020. It's about atopic dermatitis. It's free. It's worth 1.5 CME credit hours. It's got some self-study modules. You kind of go at your own pace. You interact with some of the other participants and with me, and then we have a couple live discussions. You learn some more about atopic dermatitis. If you're interested, I'll put a link in the show notes. And now, on with the show. Hello, friends and colleagues, and welcome to Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. This is episode 41, and I am Luke Johnson, one of your hosts. I am a pediatric dermatologist and general dermatologist with the University of Utah. And joining me on the line is, of course... This is Michelle Tarbox. I am an associate professor of dermatology and dermatopathology at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in beautiful, beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas. Our mission is to bring some of the latest dermatology research to your ears so that you can listen to it on this glorious podcast while driving or exercising or cooking or whatever else you would like to do and free up some more time in your day to treat patients or do something else instead of flipping through journal articles and clicking through emails. We try to keep it a little bit light because sometimes if you just talk about research, you can get dry. <laughs> so um, I tell a lot of dad jokes. <laughs> so we're going to discuss a nice collection of articles today. I've got the first one. This is out of the JEADV, the Journal of Woo-hoo! the European Academy of Dermatology and Venereology. Reminding us our origins, syphilology. Like it. I did not do a venereology residency, though. I'll just put that <laughs> out there. Uh, so the authors include L.E.M. Dewees and D.J. Hijnen. I probably mispronounced those names. I apologize. These folks are from the Netherlands, Denmark, and Germany. And this article is entitled An Approach for the Transition from Systemic Immunosuppressants to Dupilumab. So before we started the show, Michelle, you and I were talking about how much we like Dupilumab. Yeah, it's a useful medication. We keep finding new ways to use it, and it's kind of hard to mess it up. It's great medicine. I mean, it's so easy compared to the other things we do for, like, atopic dermatitis. Neither of us are sponsored. We do not have a relationship with the company that makes Dupilumab. No, but uh, I wouldn't mind one. It's a a product I believe in. So... uh, you know, I'm a pediatric dermatologist. I've just been in attending for a couple years, but in fellowship and early attending ship, dupilumab wasn't approved for most of my patients who kind of needed it. So we did methotrexate or cyclosporin or just tried to muddle through with topicals. Occasionally, light therapy would work for somebody. But methotrexate and cyclosporin, while sometimes they work pretty well, they're kind of annoying because got to check lab work and kids hate having their blood drawn and you've got to deal with like nausea and fatigue and checking blood pressures and so on. So um, dupilumab is great. It's the easy button, as uh, my former residency chair would say. And so if you can get it from insurance, then we've got patients who need to transition from one of their systemic immunosuppressants onto dupilumab. Did you have a protocol that you followed in your own clinic before reading this article, Michelle? Not really. So this was actually nice. I was encouraged to see someone kind of standardize this because I think sometimes you just sort of dovetail one medicine over the other one and try to avoid interactions, but also you don't want to have untreated disease and flare. I think what I usually told people is dupilumab works pretty quick. And in my head, I was thinking like, not as fast as cyclosporin, but still pretty fast, like two to three weeks. So I basically told people to stop their systemic immunosuppressant at the same time they started their dupilumab, thinking that the systemic immunosuppressant would be in their system long enough to carry them through that two to three weeks or whatever until the dupilumab kind of kicked in. But that was probably a little bit optimistic on my part. And so these authors um, suggest this protocol for transitioning your atopic dermatitis patients from a systemic immunosuppressant to dupilumab. Their patients were adults, but I don't see why this wouldn't work for kiddos as well. They do point out that 65% of patients who get dupilumab are already on a systemic immunosuppressant when they get it. So it makes a lot of sense that you would think about a protocol for something like this. And they do report that part of my thinking, my kind of gestalt about dupilumab was correct. You get itch reduction by two weeks, but it turns out the full response takes eight to 12 weeks to really kick in. 
So what do you do with their immunosuppressant in the meantime? So based on their experience with 44 patients, they suggest the following. So first, they just leave people on whatever their current dose of their immunosuppressant was for eight weeks. So you're on methotrexate, 20 milligrams a week or whatever, or you're on cyclosporin, 100 BID. You just keep doing that while you start dupilumab and for the next eight weeks. So my impression is that they start dupilumab at a particular office visit and then don't follow up until eight weeks later. And then after eight weeks, they've split people apart in the cyclosporin group and then in the everything else group. Because if you discontinue cyclosporin too quickly, apparently you get significant rebound at times. I admit that I haven't seen that, um, but I believe them. So everybody who's not on cyclosporin, so methotrexate, azathioprine, mycophenolate, after eight weeks, they have their dose of their immunosuppressant. Okay, so if you're on 20 milligrams of methotrexate, they decrease it to 10, and then they have them follow up in another four weeks. So this is at week 12 for dupilumab. And if the patient is doing well, then they discontinue their systemic immunosuppressant at that time. So they say, all right, looks like the dupilumab is really doing well. So go ahead and stop your methotrexate. In cyclosporin, so again, they just continue the same dose until week eight. At that point, patient comes in for a follow-up visit. If they're doing pretty well, then they reduce the cyclosporin, but they don't cut it in half. They reduce it by 25%. So if your patient was on 200 milligrams of cyclosporin a day, they would reduce it to 150 milligrams a day. And then come back in two weeks. And if they're doing well at two weeks, then they decrease it by another 25% of their initial dose. So down to 100 milligrams. And they kind of keep doing that every two weeks. So every two weeks, if they're doing well, decrease by 25%. And then, of course, then you would stop it entirely after four times doing that. That's pretty cool. I think that um, the concept of rebound with cyclosporin mostly comes out of the transplant literature. Um, it's been like kind of touched on, I think, occasionally with psoriasis, although it's mostly the articles that I've, I've seen about it actually say that rebound is rare with psoriasis treated by cyclosporin. Um, but you can definitely have um, rebound when you're doing um, cyclosporin withdrawal on transplant patients. So that might be where that kind of idea comes from. So if your patient is not doing well, though, then they recommend that you continue them at their current dose of the immunosuppressant until their next follow-up visit. So that's generally four weeks, possibly two weeks if they're on cyclosporin. And then if they're still not doing well after that, then you consider them to be either a dupilumab failure and you stop that medicine or you try to leave them on some amount of their systemic immunosuppressant while also being on dupilumab. As much as we like dupilumab, sometimes it just doesn't do the trick all by itself. So you need to leave people on a little bit of methotrexate or something like that while they're on it. Um, and then they say... Some, you got to make sure that their topical treatment is optimized as well, which, of course, we try to do for all of our atopic dermatitis patients. So that's all. I thought it was nice to have a protocol because I was just kind of shooting from the hip about this before, but now I've got an actual protocol by people who sound like they know what they're doing and have had some experience. That's pretty cool. I thought that was a nice discussion of how to kind of overlap those treatment protocols um, you know, usually if there's not a drug-drug interaction and their condition, the patient's condition has been previously recalcitrant or difficult to manage, which often is the case if you're switching therapies, so long as they're tolerating the prior treatment, I do frequently kind of dovetail the treatments over each other kind of like this, but having an actual protocol is very nice to have. And I think that that's um, always good to have sort of a little bit of a rule book to fall back on. So uh, I think that cyclosporin can be an incredibly useful medication for atopic dermatitis. I'm actually slightly more comfortable using it in children than I am in adults, just because children do so well with these medications, whereas adults have other bad habits that often make those medications more complicated to use. But it is definitely if a kid has had bad enough dermatitis to pull the cyclosporine trigger, you know, and you can get them dupilumab, it's a great option. So Luke, we've discussed the use of dupilumab for a lot of different indications over the course of the Dermosphere podcast. Back in episode 29, we actually talked about the use of dupilumab for bolus pemphigoid. And so, yes. yeah. I'm trying it with one of my patients. Um, she's better, but it might be the prednisone. Did you have any trouble getting it covered? You know, we did not, which is a miracle because I have trouble getting it covered for its approved indications. <laughs> 
Sometimes it's just the weird voodoo that they do so well. So um, I would like to engage with your indulgence in a small etude and variations upon drug-induced bullus pemphigoid. Would that be cool? <laughs> that would be great. I don't um, know what it means, though. <laughs> well, I'm going to um, basically talk about um, sort of a, a very interesting article about the association between medication use and bullus pemphigoid. And then there's a couple of related kind of correspondence articles that we'll also sort of discuss. Sounds good. Sign me up. All right. So um, drug-induced bullous pemphigoid is hot right now. So hot. Um, so there's lots of articles coming out about different drugs that can potentially induce bullous pemphigoid. There's the new um, autoimmune checkpoint inhibitor induced bullous pemphigoid, like anti-PD-1 checkpoint induced bullous pemphigoid induced by nivolumab or pembrolizumab. Um, there's also been discussions about the fact that the risk of developing bullous pemphigoid is elevated up to threefold after a diagnosis of Alzheimer's and up to fourfold after a diagnosis of vascular dementia. And... I feel like some of this should be bellworthy, Michelle. Oh, yes. Gosh, I always forget to use the bell to remind me. Where's the, yeah, the bell is like uh, pimpable content. This is our pimpable content bell, so yay. So this is definitely pimpable content. Um, a Finnish population study actually also showed an increased risk of bolus pemphigoid with diagnosis of schizophrenia, delusional disorder, um, major depressive disorder, or other types of dementia. And over 50 agents have been implicated in the causation of bolus pemphigoid. Um, in a lot of our textbooks, those have included agents such as diuretics, ACE inhibitors, and antibiotics. Of course, if you look in um, the literature, you also see the dirty boy of dermatology, D-penicillamine, which causes everything, um, captopril, gold sodium thiosulfate, and a medication called puritanol, which is basically two B6 molecules attached to each other with two sulfur bonds. Sulfur seems to be the sort of unifying principle of trouble causing in some cases of drug-induced bolus pemphigoid. And I don't know if there's going to eventually be a difference that sort of susses out between drug-induced and drug-associated bolus pemphigoid. But all of these have been sort of hot topics that have been bandied about. Um, so this uh, set of authors actually took a slightly different approach. So this is an article out of JAMA Dermatology by Shen De Liu and Ching Chi Chi et al. out of Taiwan. And they wanted to look at the association between the use of medications and the development of bolus pemphigoid. And so they wanted to do a systemic review and meta-analysis utilizing PubMed, the Cochrane um, Central Register of Controlled Trials, and Embase, and looked at case control and cohort studies and randomized clinical trials examining the odds or risk ratio of bolus pemphigoid in patients with previous medication use. Um, they didn't impose any geographic or language limitations, so they had articles they included from all over the world. Some of the articles were out of France, other articles were out of other parts of Europe. Um, so, you know, it, I think it might be more generalizable than if it was just out of like a Taiwanese um, patient population. And they Can I tell you what surprised me the most out of this article? That none of the drugs that you've been taught about were the ones that showed up? No, because I could never remember them anyway. <laughs> so I didn't know enough to be surprised. Okay. What, what surprised me the most was how many studies there have been that have looked at associations between various drugs and bolus pemphigoid. So as point. I'm sure you'll get to, there are some drugs that are associated, but there's a huge slew where they've actually done studies and found that they're not associated. And I mm -hmm. had no idea. Absolutely. Well, and some of the ones that we've been classically taught are associated didn't actually show up in this particular study. So I think the jury is still out on the you know specific medications that we have to think about. I think we have to sort of broaden our horizons a little bit, and I'll kind of get to that in a minute. Um, so basically, they use something called MOOSE, um, which is the Meta-Analysis of Observational Studies in Epidemiologists. Uh, sorry, epidemiology guideline. So the Moose guideline. They also used the Newcastle Ottawa scale to evaluate the risk of bias um, and the included observational studies. And they used the Cochrane collaborations tool for randomized clinical trials. So all of these are just instruments to make sure that they're accounting for any possible introduction of different types of error or bias that are unique to the different types of studies they included in their meta-analysis. Since they had three different kinds, case control, cohort, um, randomized controlled trials, they want to make sure that they're not going to have any sort of introduction of error here. Um, and so they went through this sort of nice 
little branch point diagram that they do in a lot of these studies where they, you know, found 300, sorry, 3,230 records um, looking out of their different databases um, from their various sources, PubMed, Embase, Central, and other sources. They removed duplicates, and then they excluded some trials based off of their exclusion criteria. They looked at the full text articles of 148 and then excluded 133 um, because they either didn't meet inclusion criteria or didn't have usable data or there was a, it was a pharmacovigilance study or some they had seen results as a poster presentation or identical study population. And so then they included in this study uh, 11, trial, 11 studies and they had a patient, um, so 11 studies that were actually, sorry, it was 13 case control studies, one cohort and one randomized controlled clinical trial. I think that in their, interesting, well, 11 were included in their quantitative synthesis. So their PRISMA diagram is a little bit different than what's um, specified here in their results, but that might be because that's kind of looking at a subset of data. So this was a prismatic moose analysis. It was a prismatic moose, yes. It's very psychedelic. You know, I, I'm sure that psilocybin can probably also induce bulls pemphigoid. We're going to stay tuned. Um, so they ended up with 285,000 participants, and they showed a significant association of bolus pemphigoid with previous use of aldosterone. Oh, yes. Hold on. Aldosterone antagonists. And this broke my heart a little bit because, as you know, Luke, spironolactone is one of my all-time favorite medications. So I, I use it all the time. I don't like seeing it get a black eye for anything, but here they did find an association between spironolactone and um, its similar medications. Uh, with an increased risk of drug-induced or drug-associated bolus pemphigoid with an odds ratio of 1.75 and that confidence interval of 1.28 to 2.40. So pretty narrow confidence interval, not capturing one. Um, so it is significant. They also found an increased risk with dipeptidyl peptidase 4 inhibitors, otherwise known as anything with the last name glyptin. So citagliptin, saxagliptin, linagliptin, and algagliptin. Um, these are diabetes medicines. Diabetes medications, yes. So these are not medications we use a whole lot. Um, these had a odds ratio of 1.92, that confidence interval 1.55 to 2.38. Um, interestingly, because of these previous studies that look at the risk of developing bolus pemphigoid after a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, anticholinergics showed up with an odds ratio of 3.12, so relatively high odds ratio there, um, confidence interval 1.54 to 6.33, so relatively wide there. And I don't know if you're going to talk anymore about that association, but just in case, um, I mean, it makes sense to me that people who are itchy get anticholinergics. So right. can the studies really tell us that it's somehow potentially medication induced or do people just get itchy because they have bolus pemphigoid and somebody gives them an anticholinergic, but they just had bolus pemphigoid the whole time? This is true. Um, and this is something that they also kind of talk about a little bit later in the article, like, is there a chicken or egg situation? Um, these uh, anticholinergics, some of these can be used for the treatment of neuropsychiatric disorders, including Parkinson's. They're also broadly used for other things. They're used for urinary incontinence, like oxybutynin. They're used for treating COPD like atropine. And they're also used for motion sickness, scopolamine. And one of my other favorite medicines, glycopyrrolate, is you know notably an anticholinergic medication. Um, I use that for patients who have hyperhidrosis, and I use it for patients who have bad mucositis sometimes. Um, from usually those are patients that have anti some some kind of chemotherapeutic on board. But um, those medications showed up. That was the relatively high risk ratio. Dopamine dopaminergic medications also used sometimes to treat psychiatric disorders, including ADHD and binge eating disorder medications. But mostly Parkinson's disease. Yeah, also Parkinson's. Um, so medications like um, Vinase, which is Lista amphetamine, I suppose that's what it's called. Um, so the odds ratio here was 2.03, confidence interval 1.3 to 3.05. They said also one cohort study found an increased risk of bolus pemphigoid amongst patients receiving these dipeptidyl peptidase 4 inhibitors, these gliptins, similarly elevated odds ratio, this 2.38. Um, confidence interval, which was significant. And another trial found a higher occurrence of bolus pemphigoid in patients with diabetes receiving linagliptin. So the gliptins are kind of getting a black eye here in this article as well. Uh, so their conclusions were that they were able to find these signals for aldosterone ag antagonists, dipeptidyl peptidase 4 inhibitors, um, anticholinergics, and dopaminergic medications with an increased risk of bolus pemphigoid. So they, and they did say that, sorry, that they corrected for studies that yes. did not 
take into account the fact that people on dopaminergic medications also have some kind of neuropsychiatric disorder, which by itself is associated with Bull's pemphigoid. So Mm -hmm. even by correcting for that, these medicines were still associated with Bull's pemphigoid. So if you don't mind ringing the bell, my main takeaway was that aldosterone antagonists, gliptins, and dopaminergic medications could potentially induce bolus pemphigoid. Mm-hmm. And I don't buy the anticholinergic thing, at least not yet. <laughs> I think that, you know, it's always reasonable to be moderately skeptical. So I do think that that was an important part of the article. They did look at um, the kind of articles in exclusion of patients who actually had a diagnosis of neuropsychiatric disease to sort of analyze the population separately and make sure that this isn't a chicken or egg situation with that problem. Um, we also do know that there is a very intimate relationship between our neurologic system and our skin's health. And we see that play out in patients who have a stroke, which will then develop seborrheic dermatitis on the half of their body that's been affected by the stroke, or patients who have Parkinson's disease that can get severe seborrheic dermatitis. I think that we see this all the time, and we just don't recognize it in patients who have diabetes that have really bad pruritus and itching because of the kind of nerve damage, but also potentially because of the dysregulation of there's, I think that there's kind of a little axis between the immune system and our neurologic system and our skin's health. And when it gets disrupted, all hell breaks loose. Uh, so they do a little bit of discussion as to how all of this actually maybe happens. Bulls pemphigoid, of course, is the most common autoimmune blistering disease. And we know histopathologically what we see is subepidermal separation and inflammation with our eosinophils intense bullet. Autoantibodies target, of course, BPAG1, which is um, BPAG1. 230 and BPAG2, which is BP180 antigen that are involved in the pathogenesis. And they talked about the the possibility that the incidence is actually increasing. So the annual incidence seems to be um, increasing to two from 2.4 to 21.7 per million population in different populations worldwide. And that various studies have shown increase in the incidence of bolus pemphigoid of 1.9 to 4.3 fold compared to what was previously reported over the past two decades. So there seems to be an accelerating frequency of bolus pemphigoid. Now that may be related to increasing life expectation because, you know, patients that are older are more likely to develop bolus pemphigoid. Increasing use of certain medications may play a role. And as we discussed back in um, episode seven, when we talked about non-bolus bolus pemphigoid, um, increasing recognition of atypical variants of bolus pemphigoid may also be partially responsible for the increasing um, prevalence of this condition. The potential associations of medicines with BP have actually been looked at relatively extensively. Like you said, it was surprising how much this has actually been looked at. Medications may produce antibody production by acting as haptins to bind to proteins in the lamina lucida. Or they may unmask hidden antigens to stimulate the autoimmune response. Um, So they wanted to look at studies that have case controls or randomized controlled um, trials. They also pointed out that two case controlled studies examined the use of diuretics, but had conflicting data on the association between loop diuretics and BP, which is one of the drug classes I was always taught to suspect for bolus pemphigoid. They said there hadn't been any comprehensive studies to clarify the association between various medications and BP, and so that's what they undertook with this study. Um, Notably, to me, were the medications that did not show a significant increased risk of bolus pemphigoid, which include thiazide diuretics, which would be a medication class I would really kind of associate potentially with a little bit of side eye for bolus pemphigoid. Um, Metformin didn't show any positive signal. Um, There was no positive signal with the sulfonylureas, um, the thiazolidine dions, which are the glitazones, and then also glucagon-like peptide 1 analogs, which are the glutides. Uh, They also didn't find an association with patients that had use of anxiolytics. Weirdly, they found a decreased risk of bolus pemphigoid with the use of both opioids and um, salicylate medications, so aspirin-type medicines. I thought that, that was, was kind weird. Of, I was like, so opiates lower your risk for bolus pemphigoid. That's interesting. That's why I take them. That's why I take I them. Mean, well, you know, and that does make me wonder, though, because I, I think there have been a couple articles about the use of naltrexone for certain um, pruritic disorders and maybe even mild cases of bolus pemphigoid. So I think there is involvement of that axis potentially in the oh yeah that way back in uh, demo episode number one, which is also available as a bonus episode. We discussed the use of low dose naltrexone in dermatology. I use naltrexone quite a lot, actually. I think it's a very good medicine. You do have to be aware that some patients' employers will need an explanation as to why they're on it, but 
I think that's a bell-worthy topic. Um, other things that didn't show up, ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, which I think I'd always also been taught to kind of associate potentially with um, bolus pemphigoid, warfarin, uh, also not associated, neither was statins or fibrates. So a lot of medicines that are relatively noisy did not show up in this study. So I thought that that was really kind of fascinating. Um, antibiotics, not a significantly associated in this study, and they're going to show up in a study we briefly touch on after this. Um, so I thought that was really kind of a very interesting difference in some of previously reported literature. They talked about um, the other possibility is, of course, previous medication exposure can sensitize patients and then exposure to similar drugs could potentially precipitate um, the condition due to cross-reactivity of medications, or there's the possibility that molecular mimicry is involved in the immune pathogenesis of medication-induced BP, uh, also potentially binding to microRNA or transcriptional translators. Medications might actually get misidentified as non-self antigens. And they also may decrease the number of um, our Treg cells. So those are FOX3 so FOXP3 expressing CD4 positive, CD25 positive Treg cells. So that's something that is actually decreased in patients who have uh, bolus pemphigoid and potentially medications that affect that could produce uh, precipitation of the disease. They also said specific medications like furosemide could change antigenic properties in the basement membrane binding to protein molecules and causing exposures of hidden antigenic sites. Or Except that it doesn't they look didn't like furosemide is actually I associated know. with it. They didn't find it here. That was the weird thing. They also said medications with sulfur moieties, like the thiol formation um, after xenobiotic metabolism, could directly disrupt the dermoepidermal junction by interacting with the sulfhydryl groups in the desmosome, but none of those medicines actually showed a signal in this study. So I thought that was really kind of interesting. Um, the other thing they talked about was the fact that Patients with more severe neurologic disease are more likely to take multiple medications and maybe more likely also to develop BP, but there's a lack of studies examining the association of BP with very severity of neurologic disease or very severity of Parkinson's disease. So, you know, the four classes of medications that really came out of this um, article aren't ones I would have traditionally thought about. Um, you know, of course, my heart is hurt for spironolactone because I love that drug. Um, not, I don't have any feelings at all about the, you know, Gliptins. I know some people are taking this, of course, for management of their diabetes and then the dopaminergic medications. So in the sort of etude and rhapsody on bolus pemphigoid and drug-induced bolus pemphigoid, there was a little dialogue in the literature back and forth over an article that was published as a research letter in the JAD um, called Missed Drug-Induced Bolus Pemphigoid Leads to Longer Immunosuppression Than Recognized Cases, a Nine-Year Retrospective Review. So this was a little um, research letter to the editor, and it talked about the fact that, you know, drug-induced bolus pemphigoid associated with more than 50 medicines. Potentially, people might not recognize the association between the medication and the condition at the time of diagnosis. In this study, the medications they identified with the association with with um, bolus pemphigoid were antibiotics, diuretics, including hydrochlorothiazide and furosemide antihypertensives such as statin, uh, sorry, um, such as beta blockers, statins, um, analgesics, including hydrocodone, which was interesting, and then proton pump inhibitors. And so that's sort of counter to what this giant meta-analysis Counter to this meta-analysis, yes. So in this, in this little research letter, they did talk about how if you didn't identify and withdraw the patient off of the medication that may have precipitated the condition, the patient might require immune suppression longer to re achieve remission. And then there was a little dialogue back and forth. Um, so there was a response to this. Um, so we had a little, uh, little letter back that said, um, missed induced bolus pemphigoid when the anamnesis is the cure. So anamnesis is one of my favorite words. Um, in sort of the general usage, it can mean remembrance of things from a supposed previous existence, so re recollecting a past life, but it also can be about past medical history. And so in this- That's so much more prosaic. I, I feel know. like I would much rather remember things from my former lives. I mean, right? Anamnesis. So um, they did point out the fact that you know, the definition of drug-induced bolus pemphigoid was kind of defined as um, bolus pemphigoid associated with a medication that had been started within the previous um, six months, and that this potentially was um, a window that might miss uh, medications that might have induced the bolus pemphigoid because they could have been started actually longer. Some medications have actually... Um, 
induced bolspemvigoid after even like a year of treatment. Uh, they also pointed out that, you know, they medication, of course, could be um, more of a kind of a coincidence than anything else that the patient's um, you know, should have a look that there should be an interrogation of the patient's history, but um, they sort of just sort of questioned the definitions of um, how the drug-induced bolus pemphigoid was laid out in this article. Uh, and so then there was a little letter back, actually, from the author, authors of the original letter. Misinduced bolus pemphigoid, when the anamnesis is the cure, a comment on misdrug-induced bolus pemphigoid leads to longer immunosuppression than recognized cases, a nine-year retrospective review. So I always kind of like it when there is a little back-and-forth tete-a-tete sort of dialogue that occurs within the literature. And um, so they kind of go back over this. They said, you know, the two issues that they raised were that you know, the patients that had a new medicine added within six months, um, they were concerned that, you know, this might be kind of a general limitation of the, you know, definition of the of the cases of drug-induced bolspemphigoid. And that was, of course, that was something that they actually acknowledged in their original publication. So that's good that they did bring that up. Um, and they did call them potentially drug-related, not definitive drug induced bolspemphigoid, which I thought was reasonable. Um, and then the second thing was that the six-month cutoff might miss potential drug-induced bolspemphigoid cases because some medications might take longer to do that. Um, they did relate, of course, that the, the literature suggests that chronic medications are unlikely to trigger BP. And um, they had another recent review article that kind of affirmed that drug-induced bolspemphigoid manifests up to three months after the ingestion of the culprit medication. So they thought that their interval was reasonable to incorporate. But um, I think that, you know, like I said, this is a hot topic right now. Uh, we do certainly want to look at things that could be contributing to the causation of a chronic immunobolus disease and, you know, take into consideration what we can do to help modify those patients' risk. The authors of the original article here out of the JAMA um, looking at that association between the different medications that found the kind of four classes of medications that we wouldn't have initially suspected, recommended potentially limiting the use of these medications when possible in patients with increased risk, which would be patients who have any kind of neuropsychiatric disease and are elderly. But difficult to do sometimes. Well, one reason I thought it was useful to review some of these letters um, is just because I wanted to know how long it took drug-induced bolus pemphigoid to show up. And while it can be a while, potentially, mm -hmm. it's usually mostly within one to three months, it looks like. Yeah, the vast majority. So I just made a little list here of all the drugs that have been studied and are not associated with bolus pemphigoid. So the following, according to the Jamaderm article that we just talked about, are not associated with bolus pemphigoid. Bell, please. Thiazides, loop diuretics, metformin, sulfonylureas, glitazones, glutides, antipsychotics, sedatives, ACE inhibitors, ARBs, alpha blockers, beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, central antihypertensives, vasodilators, aspirin, warfarin, clopidogrel, dipyridamol, statins, fibrates, tricyclic and tetracyclic antidepressants, SSRIs, SNRIs, NSAIDs, antibiotics, proton pump inhibitors, H2 blockers, and then of course opioids and salicylates for some reason have this negative association. I think so all that stuff, don't worry about it. <laughs> right. So, you know, I think it was a very interesting article. I don't know that those associations necessarily di disappear completely off our radar, though, because it would definitely still potentially be the right answer on an academic exercise. The thiol groups, the calcium channel blockers, the gold thiosulfate, um, all of those are still showing up in textbooks. D-penicillamine, of course, which wasn't in this article. Are but, you telling people to remember the wrong thing in order to I get a am, question right I on the test? I am telling people that this is a uh, piece of research that's in progress. This is one article out of a large body of research. And so certainly take it into consideration. But um, I don't know that we can have a full paradigm shift based off of this article, although it was quite well done. I'm paradigming my shift. <laughs> or shifting my paradigm. This is a huge meta-analysis. Um, those tests are notoriously out of date generally anyways, though I know they're getting better. And I'm ready to stop talking about bolus pemphigoid. Okay. I want to talk more about dupilumab. Then do it. So this is out of the JAD, and the title is Characterizing Dupilumab Facial Redness in Children and Adolescents, a Single Institution Retrospective Chart Review. And the authors include Sonal Muzamder and Jane Grant Kells, from the University of Connecticut. Good people. So back in episode two, we discussed 
quote, new regional dermatoses, which can show up on, in patients on dupilumab. This looks a bit like eczema, commonly affected the face. And one hypothesis that that previous article mentioned was that this new regional dermatosis could represent an unmasked or a new allergic contact dermatitis as a response to dupilumab's tinkering with immune pathways. Okay. Mm -hmm. So this article we're talking about today seems to describe the same entity and they refer to it as dupilumab facial redness. They say it affects about 10% of adults on dupilumab. So my recollection is that conjunctivitis is about 13% and is kind of the most common side effect. So this is not too far behind. And this article points out a different hypothesis that this dupilumab facial redness or new regional dermatosis could be a seborrheic dermatitis-like phenomenon. Interesting. So the authors wanted to examine this condition in children, and so they retrospectively reviewed their EMR and found 24 children who were prescribed dupilumab for atopic dermatitis. Seven of them, so 29%, had dupilumab facial redness. So that's a lot more than the 10% that adults get. They pointed out that there was a trend, though not statistically significant, toward more involvement in pubertal children. And they were specifically looking at that issue because pubertal children more often get seborrheic dermatitis, as we know. So they figured that the more ramped up your sebaceous glands were, the more likely you were to potentially have this complication. Um, Again, there was a trend, but it wasn't statistically significant, maybe because they didn't have all that many patients. And in this institution, they treat dupilumab facial redness with ketoconazole cream. Okay. They don't actually say that like it works but i kind of assume that it does since that seems to be their protocol so i thought this article was nice that that's all i thought this article was nice for a couple reasons one is that it brought again attention to this fairly common though not serious side effect on a medicine that we both like quite a bit And I like the fact that there is another explanation for why it might happen. And because of that, there is another treatment option available. So if I have a patient who gets this, I think my question is going to be, hmm, do I think it looks a little bit more like Sebderm and want to treat it with ketoconazole? Or does it look a little bit more like an eczematous eruption and I'll treat it with a topical steroid or calcineurin inhibitor? Mm -hmm. I think that's good to have in your armamentarium for when you're using this medication because, you know, we do need to think about how the microbiome of the skin might be altered by these medications that, as you put it so nicely, tinker (laughs) with the immune response. And, you know, our immune response in health, in skin health, is supposed to be balanced to allow for a healthy commensal population of microorganisms on our skin, and that can become altered if we have certain agents of our innate or adaptive immune system that are manipulated. So what if I am on dupilumab and I get dupilumab facial redness and I don't want to bother my doctor by asking them for a prescription? Maybe I can just buy a topical steroid online. Why, I think you may be able to in this terrifying article that we have to review by the International Journal of Dermatology, which is a correspondence. Um, the authors are Yumeng Lee and Fabrizio Gallimberti out of the um, University of Miami in Miami, Florida. And so this is actually the availability of prescription medications for sale without a prescription on the internet in the United States. And sometimes it is relatively terrifying what you can find for sale to the lay public. Um, Recently, there was a discussion in a little group I belong to about there being injectable hyaluronic acid products available on Amazon with needles and everything. And it had a little like disclaimer that said, These should only be purchased and used by medical professionals, but there was no checkpoint to stop people from just ordering this and blinding themselves at home, potentially. So There was a little winky face after that. (laughs) It's showing you how you look when you're just being able to see out of one eye. Um, So so this is a letter to the editor where they said, basically, few scientific and journalistic reports have examined the availability of prescription medicines via illicit online sellers. I kind of liked how they phrased that. Um, In the past, attention has been concentrated on the sale of psychotherapeutic and erectile dysfunction medications, which are rampant and, you know, very easy to find, apparently, on the internet. Um, However, they did a little search um, from March 1st of 2019 to April 15th of 2019 of online sellers, and they were able to find 25 prescription medications available for purchase without a prescription. Um, The Google, eBay, and Amazon search engines were used, and the search terms were basically by drug name, and then they used the generic and the trade names of the medications. So they would type in, like, like, buy clobetasol. Yeah, 
by Accutane. Exactly. And then um, most of the medicine or many of the medicines were topical medicines with limited side effects, but some of them were systemic medications as well, including antihypertensives, antibiotics, antifungals. So you could potentially treat your facial erythema on your own and acne medications. Um, they focused a bit on the availability of isotretinoin um, because this medication is relatively correctly, I think, regulated tightly in this country because of its potential teratogenicity. Um, oh my goodness, it's so frustrating. The FDA seems to care so much about your patients coming in every month so you can remind them not to give their medicines to anybody else, but then there's all these ways to get it online that they don't seem to be cracking down on. It was a very frustrating and scary thing because, of course, it has this risk of teratogenicity. It can be purchased easily from online retailers. Now, in this table, they do indicate where um, the products were coming from. So the online retailers um, kind of retailing some of these drugs, some of them were coming from within the U.S. and some were not. So isotretinoin was not coming from the United States. Um, Other medications were coming from within the U.S. Uh, It was mostly topicals, although doxycycline oral um, antibiotic was available from within the United States from illicit online retailers. And they pointed out that the lay public might not know not to take doxycycline and isotretinoin together. And they might say, I've got real bad acne. I'm going to take these medicines for acne and get my acne under control. So, you know, these patients can get these medicines easily purchased online. They actually did sort of a little sting operation where they purchased the medication to make sure that they could actually receive it. Um, So they actually purchased it and made sure it got delivered by mail. Um, They placed an order through eBay, paid with a credit card. The seller shipped the item that was delivered to them within one month of of purchase. Um, Five stars. No, five stars. You know, five stars. My baby's head looks funny. Um, Maybe maybe half a star down for that. Um, So doxycycline, again, of course, was also available for purchase online. And that one was actually coming from within the United States. The call is coming from inside the house. Um, So, of course, we wouldn't put a patient on isotretinoin and doxycycline at the same time because you could have pseudotumor cerebri. That could be very potentially life threatening. Ding, Um, ding. A lay person might not know that, you know. Um, they Though said, maybe that lay person has been listening to our podcast. I think <laughs> that we reviewed a couple articles that have discredited pseudotumor cerebri with both medicines, but still. Well, not completely discredited, but I think they happen a lot less frequently with those medications than we talk about them. However, I have had patients that have had pseudotumor cerebri induced by one medication in each class at different times, like not the same person. Um, so, and not, not under my treatment, thank goodness. But anyway, they also pointed out that um, many of the other medications could interact with each other. Um, sometimes side effects were listed, uh, but possible medication interactions were never listed, including medications with potentially significant interactions like azoles. So for example, they had some of the azole antifungals like terbenafine PO, which was available from within the United States without a prescription with no interact, no drug interactions at all. Dryness was the reported side effect for isotretinoin. They didn't mention teratogenicity in that like patient information or whatever when they mailed them their isotretinoin. Um, and they also didn't talk about interactions with other medications. Uh, so basically, there's a little bit of a mortifying availability of some of these drugs to patients without the supervision of a physician, and it could cause harm to patients through drug-drug interactions. Um, black box warnings also weren't included in the warnings to patients. And so, you know, I think that the possibility of patients to obtain some of these medications is disconcerting, as are um, the promotion of some of these in patient forums, which they sort of pointed out. They said that there were posts where the medications actually were listed as to where they were available for purchase online. Um, eBay has a policy that forbids the sale of substance requiring, requiring a prescription, but many clearly named medications were available for sale on their website. So it seems like it's a policy in name only. Uh, they One also- of the forums that they mention is forum.bodybuilding.com bodybuilding.com tells you where you can buy some of these yes um so they also pointed out that the medical community needs to know this is a possibility because you know patients might be on medications that we don't know they're on because of this um the ability to kind of advocate for policy change to protect patients from this kind of you know illegal seller could potentially be impactful because there are three main um, ways that we can report things to the FDA. So you can report a life-threatening situation involving an FDA product. There's a phone number they actually list. I'm going to go ahead and say it because I think we actually should all have this phone number somewhere. Um, so it's 1-866-300-4374. 
That's the phone number to report a life-threatening situation involving an FDA-approved product. To report a serious reaction or problem with an FDA-approved product, you're supposed to submit that by the MedWatch reporting form. And to report non-life-threatening and non-serious reactions, there's an online reporting form. There are also um, limitations to this report, however, and I think the fact that you can get medications like isotretinoin delivered by mail with no um, checking as to the intent of the person, they, of course, aren't checking to make sure the patient's not pregnant. Um, there's also no verification of authenticity, so we don't know if these drugs are adulterated, and counterfeit medications can, of course, present dangers to the population. They may have higher or lower doses of the drug or contaminants. Um, and potentially patients might have serious interactions. So I think that this is a potential source of harm for our patients and something we need to be aware of. Yeah. Also things you can buy online include PO tranexamic acid, mm-hmm. PO ketoconazole. Oh my God. Spironolactone. So imagine pregnant woman deciding that's a good idea to take that. Um, kind of scary. Yeah. The I mean, ketoconazole I... one freaks me out because PO ketoconazole being available um, without a prescription, when we know ketoconazole is actually the most likely oral antifungal to cause liver inflammation. So like liver toxicity is the highest risk, weirdly, with ketoconazole PO. Um, so I think that some people don't know that drug can be relatively dangerous. Like other, So basically the ones that they looked were uh, that they were able to find that they could actually buy either from within or from without the country, but without a prescription, were amiodarone, sorry, amlodipine, azithromycin, which also can cause an arrhythmia in patients who are taking it with other drugs or who are predisposed, bisopropanol, 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 it's a blood pressure drug, bisoprolol, bisoprolol, Um, clobetasol, dapstone gel, doxycycline, finasteride PO, which again, also, you know, women could take without knowing that they shouldn't get pregnant while taking it. Fluconazole, furosemide, hydroxazine, griseofulvin, isotretinoin, ketoconazole, PO, levothyroxine, which could also definitely hurt a person. And, you know, levothyroxine worries me because people with eating disorders um, could potentially order this and take it um, it, quite to their detriment. I think sometimes when I look at articles like this of patient populations that are at the greatest risk, and to me, those patient populations are ones that have sometimes a neuropsychiatric condition promoting their seek, their sort of seeking or acquisition of medications or that are very um, marginalized. So I could see a situation where somebody's trying to give themselves hormone therapy with spironolactone or with finasteride for um, transgender uh, care if they can't access proper care. Uh, I could see a situation where somebody has an eating disorder and orders levothyroxine for an attempt to manage weight and gets themselves into thyroid storm or significant side effects. Um, lisinopril, losartan, nystatin, uh, PO, prednisone PO, which we know is not a harmless medication to take by mouth. We have several articles we've reviewed based off of what that can do. Um, Cialis, spironolactone, terbinafine PO, tranexamic acid PO, which, you know, taken by mouth can have similar risks for blood clotting to an OCP, but, you know, who knows what dose these people are going to take, um, tretinoin, triamcinolone, and Viagra. So a lot of medicines that could potentially harm patients, Viagra can cause significant drops in blood pressure and it isn't safe for patients who have cardiovascular disease. You know, um, taking medications together might cause significant side effects. So a lot of these are medicines that could impact specific patient populations that are more vulnerable, I think, to making these kinds of risky decisions and also could potentially cause harm. Yeah. I don't think, you know, reading this is really going to change my practice very much. I mean, maybe if a patient shows me something dangerous that they got online, I'll actually report it somehow. But mostly this article just inspired an emotional response in me. (laughs) So (laughs) I respect that. Um, I also respect bilateral eyebrow sclerosis, a new clinical entity, which is the title of our next article out of... Um, a journal called Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery, Global Open. These are authors out of Japan and include Kazuki Ueno and Shinichi Asamura. So this is a case report. And, you know, we get these every so often on the podcast where there's a, quote, new clinical entity that's described. And it's probably not really new. It's just that we haven't really recognized it and given it a name officially before. So this potentially new clinical entity is called bilateral eyebrow sclerosis. And the case report is of a 30-year-old man who had this condition, they feel. So he had mild atopic dermatitis and had sparse eyebrows, which is not uncommon in 
atopic dermatitis. In fact, um, I believe you taught me that if you lose a bit of your lateral eyebrow in atopic dermatitis, that's Hertog sign. Yeah, I don't know how you say it. I don't know if it's, like, know if it's Hertogs or Hertogies, but yeah. And interestingly, losing your lateral eyebrows can seems to have different names depending on what condition it's responsible for. So yeah. hypo, hypo, you have hypothyroidism and you've lost your lateral eyebrows, that's Queen Anne sign. And if you have leprosy and you lose them, that's called materosis. There's a little bonus. I don't know if that's bell worthy. Maybe <laughs> somebody will be a jerk and pimp you on it sometime. <laughs> anyway, so that's not unusual. But he also had recurrent subcutaneous nodules in his eyebrows, which you wouldn't expect just with atopic dermatitis. And when he first showed up on, you know, at age 30, this condition had begun spontaneously a year prior, they say. And he reported that he first developed swollen eyebrows and then that had progressed and he sort of lost the hair and so on. And it was the loss of hair on his eyebrows that was bothering him. So these plastic surgeons excised the nodules, but came back, tried again, came back. So a year apart from each other, he tried excisions. And then 13 years later, he resurfaced <laughs> with the same problem. And they again tried to excise them again without success. But what finally gave them some success was the fourth time they excised these subcutaneous nodules, they also removed some of the underlying muscle. So this is probably why it's in the plastic surgery literature and not ours. <laughs> So they removed the skin surface, they say, fat and scar-like tissue, including some of the orbicular and frontal muscles. And then six months later, so maybe that's not long enough to really know for sure, but he hadn't had recurrence then. They did look at the histology and all it showed was sclerosis in the sub-Q. So what's going on with this bilateral eyebrow sclerosis thing? So they wondered if this were just a hypertrophic scar. They said on histopath, that was the most compatible diagnosis. And if it is indeed a hypertrophic scar, then the original trigger could have been him like scratching the heck out of his eyebrows, maybe because of his eczema. And maybe if that's the case, and these were just funny hypertrophic scars, then the relapses could have been the surgery themselves creating more scars. But they didn't really feel that these looked that much like hypertrophic scars and his atopic dermatitis was mild, at least when they met him. And they said having a bilateral quasi-symmetric lesions would be weird for hypertrophic scars. They also pointed out um, another entity called rhabdomyomatous mesenchymal hamartoma. I've had one of those before. Not you have or one I've, I've diagnosed one, sorry. I've had one histopathologically under the microscope. I have not personally had one, sorry. <laughs> So it, apparently they're rare. So the fact that you're excited that you've seen one of them in your career is, is further evidence that they're rare. Mm -hmm. And they apparently show up as a polypoid striated proliferation of muscles in perioral and periorbital reason, regions. So apparently maybe that could be consistent with this thing that they describe in this patient. But this rhabdomyomatous mesenchymal hamartoma usually occurs in pediatric patients, apparently. There is a syndrome, though. So there is a, a syndrome in young men where it can happen on the head and neck. Ah, ding, ding. Does, does the syndrome have a name? It's rhabdomyomatous mesenchymal hamartoma syndrome. Oh, good name. Catchy. Yeah. <laughs> and they don't think that's what was in this guy, especially because their histology showed sclerosis and not some kind of muscular proliferation. So they couldn't find similar reports of a case like this. So they think it might be a new entity. They do point out that the patient did not undergo further workup for things like rheumatologic etiologies or collagen vascular disorders, but they just thought that was unlikely. And they point out that what bothered this patient was just the fact that his eyebrows were sparse. So why were they sparse when all that was down in the sub-Q was sclerosis? So they suggest that maybe those subcutaneous sclerotic lesions inhibited blood flow to the hair follicles. And then finally, when they removed the nodules, then the blood flow could partially recover, allowing him to regrow at least some of his eyebrow hair. Interesting. There, there sometimes is an association with um, the rhabdomyomatous mesenchymal hamartoma with certain congenital syndromes and things like that. So it's kind of interesting. It would be really rare, I think, though, for a person to have them bilaterally. I think that's kind of very unique, like bilateral symmetric disease. I don't think it's been reported with a rhabdomyomatous mesenchymal hematoma. Yeah, the one that we had was just a little like little Goomba thing that had the, which is often some of them are polypoid. 
What was that sound that it made again? <laughs> this was when you were looking at them slide into the microscope. Yeah, you heard that no, noise. And you're totally like, oh, that noise. I'm like, oh. That's the pathognomonic. Yeah, that's the rhabdomyomatous mesenchymal hematoma. That is the mating cry of the rhabdomyomatous <laughs> mesenchymal hematoma. Yeah, so there's actually a really cute one um, patient that had one on the midline shin, and it was a, like, off, many of the case reports in these are on young patients, but they're um, not. I haven't found one that was really uh, bilaterally symmetric. So, Well, I think the moral of the story for me is that if I end up with a patient who I think might have this entity, I should just send them off to plastic surgery and not try to mess around with it myself at all. I think that's a very reasonable thing to do. Um, so I'm trying to... Oh, wait. Hold on. We had a way we were going to do this. Mm. Okay, so... You, interface you, yes yeah so we're talking about something that happened in his face and now we're going to talk about interface dermatitis sorry that was a long walk so um we're going to talk about a permalast for the off-label treatment of lichenoid and interface dermatosis so a permalast is an interesting medication there are a lot of indications that are sort of arising that aren't the fda indicated one which is psoriasis um, for a lot of people using it for psoriasis it's sort of moderately effective it's attractive to some patients because it's not an injection and you don't really have to do a whole lot of lab work for it. No, uh, you just have to poop a lot. Yeah. The the initial adjustment to the medication is a little rocky, as we know. It causes some GI distress. Um, but it, in some ways, it kind of reminds me of a medicine sort of looking for a home. Um, and so there have been case reports in the literature of the use of a permalast to treat granuloma annulare, and here they're going to talk about the use of a permalast to treat lichenoid and interface dermatitis or dermatosis. So the authors are Surya uh, Ravichandran and Minal Katerparal, um, and these are authors uh, out of Duke University, and they do not have any conflicts of interest. So this is a this letter is out of the JAD, I guess we should say. Maybe editor. we're about to say that. Yeah, this is out of the JAD. They did a letter to the editor. And so they discussed that lichenoid and interface dermatosis are common. We see them a lot in our field. There's a large spectrum of complex dermatologic conditions that can present with these histopathologic findings. And they can represent a, several severe diseases, in including systemic lupus erythematosus and graft-versus-host disease, erythema multiforme, lichen planus, and even mycosis fungoides. Uh, then they kind of discuss a little bit, a primalast is a phosphodiesterase 4 inhibitor. The way that it works is kind of one of my favorite things to pimp residents on. Um, so phosphodiesterase 4's job is basically to metabolize cyclic AMP into AMP. And when you inhibit it, um, you get a buildup of cyclic AMP in the cytoplasm of the cell. So when that happens, that sort of activates protein kinase A, and then you get activation via the C-REB pathway, which is mutated in rubenstein tabi um, And that can increase the production of anti-inflammatory cytokines with a concomitant decrease in the NF-kappa-beta arm of the inflammatory response, which decreases the inflammatory cytokines. So we have upregulations of anti-inflammatory cytokines and Downregulation of inflammatory cytokines. So in the paper, they discuss the fact that it inhibits the production of cytokines, including interferon gamma, TNF-alpha, IL-2, IL-5, IL-8, and IL-12. All of these um, lead to the activation of cytotoxic cells, causing basal keratinocyte apoptosis, which is basically the underlying mechanism of lichen planus. So the cytokines that epimolast inhibits can be some of the cytokines responsible for the activation of the cytotoxic C cells that cause the damage in an interface dermatitis. Now, with all of this, specifically with the inhibition of interferon gamma, I worried a little bit about a premolast and COVID-19 because we're figuring out how important a robust interferon response is to recovering from COVID-19. There was a really interesting article Eric Topol put out about the fact that anti-interferon antibodies seem to predict poor prognosis in patients, and they're actually an autoantibody that are more common in older males instead of in younger females. So it's kind of a weird autoantibody. So that's probably also pimpable. But um, Michelle, for a moment, I thought we were going to get through this entire episode without talking about COVID. <laughs> you have brought I me back know. to reality. I'm sorry. Um, but Reassuringly, uh, a third so far has not shown an increased signal of risk with a primalast. And the article that we reviewed on our previous podcast um, in the psoriasis database for patients who had COVID-19 and had psoriasis didn't really show severe 
increase in poor prognosis in patients treated with apremolast. So I think that we don't have to be super crazy concerned about using this medication here. So this is why they thought that potentially apremolast could be useful. Uh, they also said that the sex successful use of apremolast for interface dermatitis in the forms of recurrent erythema multiforme and drug eruptions have been previously described. But the literature describing the use of apremolastin, lichenoid, and interface dermatitis is relatively incomplete. So they're going to describe here the use of apremolastin five patients with lichenoid and interface dermatitis. Um, one patient with psoriasiform dermatitis with lichenoid change. And I wonder if this isn't this maddening entity that I want to call lupriasis, which is like patients that have what looks a lot like psoriasis, but they're kind of autoimmune and they sort of sometimes have some autoantibodies and you can't use light because they flare with light. And they're just really challenging to treat. So I wonder if this isn't sort of that lupriasis kind of situation. Um, then lichenoid change with two lichenoid dermatitis and in, two with interface dermatitis. So these were the patients that they treated with the Primalast. So these are not like names of diagnoses that you find in your textbook. No, they're not. This is kind of, is I think, frustrating. A, yeah, I think this was like a histopathologic definition of probably a challenging dermatitis that they were having a hard time treating was sort of my gestalt from reading this. Um, so in their table, they described one as psoriasiform dermatitis with lichenoid change. Um, another one was lichenoid dermatitis with hand involvement, interface dermatitis, lichenoid dermatitis, and interface dermatitis. So in my practice, I would potentially use those phrases to describe a person's outbreak if I couldn't classify it further. So if I couldn't say, okay, this is lupus or this is mixed connective tissue disease, if I didn't have like a specific name for it, I might call it by its histopathologic findings. Um, so I think that this is probably that same sort of group of patients that has the sort of nebulous, maddening, like diagnosis defying interface dermatitis. Uh, yeah, so, that was my impression as well. The sorts yeah. of things that would drive me crazy as a resident, like patient yeah. has history of interface dermatitis and I'm flipping through Bologna saying, what? Yeah. They're like, what is the thing they have in it? You can't figure it out. So they had patients that they looked through their records for a minimum follow-up of three months following initiation of treatment with a premolast to include them in this little discussion. Um, before starting a premolast, attempted therapies included prednisone, clobetasol, methotrexate, betamethasone, azathioprine, and calcineurin inhibitors, as well as topical cyclosporin with limited responses to treatment. So it sounds like they were indeed up against the wall with some of these patients. Um, they dosed the patients at a Premalast 30 milligrams twice daily. So that was their starting dose for all five patients. And then within the three month follow-up, all patients reported significant improvement in their skin lesions and associated symptoms. Three patients experienced no new lesions and two had near complete remission with less than 1% body surface area involved. They pointed out that two of their five patients had a great response to a Premalast, but were forced to stop a Premalast due to denial of insurance coverage. Um, one out of the five patients received a Premalast for 11 months with an excellent response, but experienced treatment limiting toxicity, which they have listed in the table here and appears to have been gastrointestinal, which is the chief kind of toxicity that you see with this particular medication. But she uh, could still take it at 30 milligrams a day instead of BID, it looks yeah. like. And then let's see. So they just presented these different um, interface and lichenoid dermatoses that responded well to treatment with a Premalast. In each case, patients had been tried with several therapies previously and had not recovered or had not had significant improvement. Um, so this is an off-label use, and they sort of want to discuss this as a potential treatment. Of course, this is a small study. There's only five patients in it. There's a lack of standardized scoring systems to assess treatment, and there's limited follow-up time. So I think that, you know, a Premalast has a relatively broad ability to affect inflammatory conditions because of where it operates within the inflammatory cascade. And it also has some attractiveness because of its lack of need for laboratory monitoring, relative ease of dosing if you can get people past the first couple of weeks of therapy, um, and sort of its relatively significant safety profile, at least so far. So I think that, And perhaps the generosity of the pharmaceutical company when it comes is, to providing samples. This is true. They are relatively um, generous with, the, with their provision of samples for this medication. I have not had a single sample of dupilumab, even though I would die for them for some of my patients. But I have, you know, permalast samples to, to distribute as I, as I would like. As, you know, so it, it's a, it makes it a lot easier to use the medications when you can start the patient on the medications. I understand because dupilumab has such broad utility, it might be limited because they're trying to sort of rein in its use a little bit. But 
Um, it is interesting how some companies are very liberal with their provision of samples and others are a little bit more um, tight-fisted. Uh, but, you know, I thought it was an interesting opportunity to use the medication as a treatment. Uh, I've personally experienced good utility with it also with like, diff- like diffuse granuloma annulare for a patient that we couldn't get better any other way. So we're appealing her insurance company to try to get her actually coverage for the drug. Did you know to do that because of our discussion of an article in episode 15 about a premolast for generalized GA? You know, I think that may have played a role in the decision-making process. Also in episode 15, we discussed a premolast for refractory aphthostomatitis. So it's looking around for a home, but eh, maybe it's got a few good options. Yeah. Well, that's all we got today. So today we learned how to transition from systemic immunosuppressants to dupilumab. We learned about drugs that do or do not induce bullous pemphigoid and the drugs that received, quote, black eyes, end quote, include <laughs> aldosterone antagonists, gliptins, and dopaminergic medications. We learned about dupilumab facial redness, maybe more common in kids on dupilumab than adults, and maybe can treat with ketoconazole if it's a seborrheic dermatitis-like phenomenon. We learned that you can buy whatever you want online, including things that you really shouldn't be able to buy. We learned about bilateral eyebrow sclerosis. If you think you have a patient with that, send them to plastic surgery. And we learned that a premolast might work for um, undiagnosable interface <laughs> dermatitis. Thanks so much for joining us today. And thanks, of course, to our institutions. Thanks to the University of Utah for supporting the podcast. And thanks to Texas Tech for lending us Michelle. If you would like to listen to more of our podcasts, and why wouldn't you? You can, of course, find them on Apple iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find them on our website, dermospherepodcast.com, where we have our entire archive and also links to all the original articles that we discuss. It's also a good way to get in touch with us. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We are Dermosphere Podcast, and thanks to Ryan Carlisle, who keeps those accounts moving along. And we will see you guys next time in two weeks. 